You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Act Chill. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another installment of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you being with us. With me, as always, I have Joey Bell and Paul Finley. Since I announced Joey first, Paul, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, lately, for whatever reason, you've been going to Joey first. And, you know, as we're going to talk with Belkowitz about, it's obviously because Joey's the favorite. Uh, yeah, we will get into that. We will get into the fact that Joey Bell is Active Minerals' favorite son. Uh, Joey, speaking of, uh, what's up, man? Life can't get any better, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> the heir apparent. If this was the royal family right now, Joey would be Prince Joey, next in line. Yeah, Prince Joey the Third. How's that sound, brother? Uh, no, I believe in uh, democracy. <laughs> as the perfect dancer that was a great for anyone listening to this i believe in democracy <laughs> awesome well it's been a minute since we've been on here and had some content to bring to the people uh we've been busy obviously as we hope you you all have been busy as well i mean you got to make hay when the sun shines as they say and in the middle of summertime you're pouring concrete as fast as you possibly can so We've been out helping people do so, but in the meantime, since we've been here last, what's what's new? What's new with you guys? Joey actually has a story that lends to private industry stepping up. Joey, why don't you tell the people? Yeah, there's a company out of Albany, New York, called uh, Harrison and Burroughs. They actually build, maintain, and repair bridges around New York. Their owner and COO, who has an epic mustache, by the way, if you look up Fox News, I think is where I saw it. They're starting to make a comeback. You're seeing more and more of, of the of the lip stash. I shaved down to a mustache for my daughter's first birthday, and that was the closest I've become to getting divorced. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, these guys are paying up to $47 an hour to high school graduates. They give upcoming senior year students an opportunity to work up to 200 hours to complete a summer apprenticeship. So between your junior and senior year, you can work over the summer for these guys. And the next year after you graduate, 
and start making close to six figures right out yeah. of high school. Yeah, for the people driving that can't pull out their calculator, that's $97,000 a year salary. That's assuming that they're not getting paid overtime. And typically, guys <laughs> at that level. Yeah, they're getting overtime. Have, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have an opportunity for time and a half. So you got to imagine they're making six figures coming out. So how long was that apprenticeship? You said 200 hours? 200 hours. So what's that, five weeks? Five weeks. That's it. Five weeks at 40 hours a week. So 200 hours in the construction industry is probably a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we turned that down to like three weeks. So you come out of high school and you're willing to get after it, do essentially a summer intern program. And go into the fall making a hundred k. Nineteen years old, dude. That's that's incredible. I think you yeah, mentioned you, the pension too, so that's almost unheard of as well these days. Yeah, those are things. My that wife has a pension through the VA since she's a nurse, but she's the only person under forty that I know that has a pension. Yeah, about the government teaching, it's about the only place you see those things. The question with pensions always is who's funding it. So mm-hmm. is the teacher funding the pension or is like their money coming from somewhere else that's funding it? And so when you have public pensions, I get real nervous because what that usually means is they're taking money out of your paycheck and they're going to manage your retirement for you. And we've seen teachers' pensions and other government-run pensions go insolvent. So that scares me to death. Um, but if it's a situation where it's like uh, a private company, is funding it on your behalf. Like I'm going to put in 3%, 6% on your behalf. And that's a little bit different. That's that's nice. I just thought it was cool since we've talked about before all the opportunities that kids have right out of high school. And uh, this one just popped up in national news and the guy was putting the word out. And I'm assuming that this opportunity isn't limited to New Yorkers or residents of New York State. I mean, anybody could travel up there, probably do an interview and relocate and get a job up there. Yeah, if you're willing to relocate to New York, you know, the, the saying, you couldn't pay me to live in New York, well, maybe maybe you can. <laughs> like, you, look, you look for the 19-year-old in a Ford F-350 lifted dually with 28-inch wheels and smoke sacks coming out of, the, out of the bed. Yep, that's that kid working in the concrete industry, <laughs> making 100 grand a year. <laughs> He's got nothing better to spend his money on. Man, that's awesome. I hope it works out. There's another industry right now that's paying people really well, and it's concrete adjacent. Uh, We work in it a lot, the mining industry. So, you know, we consider mining in the construction world is usually like mining of aggregates. Um, But I want to skip over to their cousin there, which is like the mining of, like, gold and copper. Well, we know here that there is a a big push to get into electric vehicles and – the supply chain behind that is uh, really reliant on foreign production of these uh, base minerals and metals. And so here in the United States, there's a push to actually open up some of these mines. So there's private companies that are like, yeah, we're ready to rock and roll. One of them is an incredible lithium deposit in Nevada. And I was just in Nevada at a mining conference. They were super excited about how the, this initiative is. So it's called Thacker Pass. And so Thacker Pass is like right at the finish line, about to get the stamp of approval. Boom, we're going to be mining lithium here. You know, there's companies that are going to be making lithium hydroxide uh, so it can be used in batteries. And all that's going to happen here. 
in the United States in the great state of Nevada. Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> there is a U.S. environmental group who has come and petitioned the U.S. government. Yes, the environment group Western Watersheds Project has petitioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to protect a spring snail. Yes, a snail. The rare Kings River spring snail that is only found in northwestern Nevada. The f*** out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so they're going to deny the lithium mine so that we don't endanger this snail that nobody's ever heard of. I hope they can speak Chinese, because if they live another 10, 15, 20 years and we're absolutely producing nothing, and they're producing everything that we rely on, you better be able to speak Mandarin. Is the, is the land that land, that mine's going to be on, is that federally owned land? I don't think it matters, um, even if it's not. The, uh, the U.S. government still has approve all mining declarations yeah. and all permits to open new mines. And so it can be shut down for any number of reasons. There was another mine, actually. It's uh, opening up. It's another lithium project. And I was talking to the company at the show, and the lady was so excited because they think they're going to start building at the end of the year. I mean, literally building on bare ground. This is a Greenfields project, right? So they got to pour a ton of concrete to build the actual plant. We're going to do all this stuff for It's another lithium project. And they got held up by uh, one of these ecologists. Somebody had gone out, because what they do when they're, they're like, oh, I want to build on this land. So all kind of agencies and representatives from the state and federal governments, they come out and they survey the land. One of the things they're looking for is wildlife, and are you going to disrupt the ecosystem? And if so, how much? And what can we live with? Well, for this other lithium project, they found an incredibly rare, it may have even been unknown before form of buckwheat and they weren't going to let the lithium mine go forward because they didn't want them to destroy the previously unknown buckwheat so <laughs> so <and laughs> the listeners can't see josh's face right now but it's glorious so <laughs> so what the mine did was they said all right they hired a botanist like brought this buckwheat expert <laughs> Please continue. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, dude. Brought this lady from South America and brought her up to Nevada and let her build like this beautiful greenhouse that is now growing this endangered buckwheat. So now it has a protected space inside of a greenhouse so that the lithium project could go forward. So we need to find like a terrarium for the snails. Is what I'm saying. That yeah. way we can get more of this lithium out of the ground. My God, I actually see this all the time in the conservation realm. Oh, sorry, hold for dogs. <laughs> yeah, I was actually hoping Joey would come in with like a little bit of the other side of the argument, even if he's a little bit on our side. That he'll yeah. at least like give us the point of view from the other side and make like a intelligent argument for us yeah i see this all the time in the conservation realm especially when it comes to like public hunting lands that are either getting sold or 
in this case, there's a mine or something going to be put on there. Conservation groups and everything else will do almost anything to get a leg up. And that sounds like what's happened in this case. Uh, even on a local level here in Tennessee, there's a WMA down around Columbia and they were going to, I'm trying to think of how many acres it was that they were going to halt the hunting on this land and they were going to turn it into a city park. And we fought that tooth and nail. And I think it was something similar. I forget what it was, but they found something rare within that WMA. And in all honesty, you could probably find something like that in any parcel of land in the country. So whether it be buckwheat or a snail or some bird or grass or just anything, uh, people will use that for a leg up against, you know, the development and, and mines and everything else. Uh, and we actually got that overturned. So we got to keep our hunting land instead of having it turned into a city park. Uh, and I know it doesn't really mean much to a lot of people, but to guys like us that recreate on those lands, we consider that our property. You know, we can go on there for free and do whatever we want with it. And when something like that comes along, development or a mine, we lose that access. And yeah, I'm all for, you know, mining of materials and everything else, as long as it's sustainable and it's not in a place where I'm going to go hunting one day. So I wonder if this land is being used for anything else. Cause what Joey just described is he didn't care about this rare snail that they found on this public hunting land. He wanted to hunt on this land and they were going to use whatever tool they had in the tool belt to try and convince, you know, this whoever was bargaining this to say you can't sell this land because of xyz so i wonder if something else is going on at this lithium mine where they're like no we want to go hiking on these trails and that's not a good enough reason to stop the development of lithium so they're like oh we're going to find this rare buckwheat and you know now you can't uh, take our hiking trails or something like that yeah, yeah, that's the reason why I asked if it was federally owned or state owned, if it was private. If it's private, then most people probably aren't really going to care. Like if you have 10,000 acres of private land and you decide to put a mine on it, that's that's up to you. I mean, that's your land. But when you go to put something like that on a like a national forest or something like that, that's when a lot of people have problems with it. Yeah, Joe, you're right. So. The mine is uh, like nine square miles of public land. It'd be an open pit, and it's going to be uh, like actually within an extinct supervolcano. So that's kind of cool. Um, you know, it's not that we don't care about the environment or anything like that. We absolutely do, and so do these mining companies. And I think as we go forward, you know, the narrative is going to change where you realize that these mining companies aren't just coming in and destroying the earth so they can get valuable minerals out of the ground. You know, they're people that are coming in and supporting families and changing the way the world operates uh, for the better in some instances. And so that's what they're going to try to do with this lithium mine. And, you know, just like as an example of how they're cognizant of what's going on and what they're not going to do, you know, it is open pit. And so, one of the reasons it's open pit is because they're not allowed to go below the water table. So none of their operation will actually break into the groundwater there in the area to help prevent like the pollution of the water in that area. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, that's good. And, and you touched on something I kind of want to elaborate on, and I'll try to keep this from going into a soapbox rant, but it might. Um, you always have to pick your poison. So there's a huge push towards this green initiative. And you touched on the fact that these mining companies, they're just as environmentally conscious as anybody. Whether it's because they have to be or they want to be, it doesn't matter. They are. And, you know, everyone wants this quote-unquote green technology. And for those listening, my eyes are rolled in the back of my head when I say that because it's an oxymoron. So you don't want to produce oil and natural gas and coal and nuclear. You want to go, you want to sustain EV vehicles. With batteries. Yeah, batteries. You, you, you want to sustain the production of electric vehicles. Well, you need rare earth minerals. You need lithium. Uh, you need nickel. You need cobalt. You need copper. You need gold. And then you need some rare earth stuff that only China has, which that's a whole different issue. But then you're not supposed to mine it. Okay? So you can't use coal. You can't use nuclear because that's dangerous, which is also wrong. But that, that's a different conversation. Different conversation for a different day. So you're not allowed to use all of these traditional, let's call them, modes of energy production. But then you want to make batteries. Well, hey, Mr. Bright Scholar, batteries don't produce energy. They store it. So you want to move to electric vehicles as a primary mode of transportation. Uh, but then you still, need to, you still need to make the energy somehow. See Southern California right now in the middle of summer when they have rolling blackouts and you're not allowed to charge your vehicle in peak hours. So you have all these environmentalists, you have all these people who quote-unquote care about the environment and they want to move to quote-unquote green energy, which is just garbage that has been pushed in the facade of something that is environmentally friendly. And then when you get to the, when they get to the point where the rubber meets the road, pardon the pun, and you need to mine the minerals in order to reach your dream of sustainability they're like oh well you can't you can't put a giant hole you can't put a nine acre hole in the ground we can't have that happen there's buckwheat that you'll disturb what you okay not in my backyard right that's the that's the saying not in my backyard so we can't do that here so we're going to let other nations like india and china and russia and other places we're going to let them dig the giant hole in the ground we're going to let south african countries and nine-year-olds we're going to let them dig the holes in the ground, all right? We're going to let them ruin their environment, and, and they're going to do it in a way that's way less sustainable than what we're going to do it. That's what always kills me is, like, if you want this done, you want these batteries, you want these materials, and you want them the most environmentally and if you want it done right, way done, yeah. you, you want it done here. Yeah, and that goes, with that, that goes with mining lithium to oil, natural gas, coal, if you want it done in the most sustainable way possible, we are the country that does it. And Canada does a great job, too. Don't get me wrong. Um, the West does it better than the East, by far. So, yeah, it just irritates me when, when people want to have their cake and eat it, too. And they don't, they don't see the forest for the trees. The argument from maybe the other side is that when we put these mines in, when we put these developments in, that's ground that's pretty much lost forever. I mean, yeah, the mines reclaim the earth and everything else after they're done and so on and so forth. But in the case of like development, like we don't get habitat back when a chunk of public land gets sold off or if a piece of federal land gets turned over to state control and then they sell it, then that's pretty much gone forever. We don't, we don't get that land back. And the argument from the, 
the side of the people that are trying to prevent all these mines is that we're trying not to lose what we already have. What Joey, the argument he makes there makes a little bit of sense, but I don't think it's entirely accurate. I think you're kind of painting with a broad brush there and a little bit of stereotypes because I look at our company, who is an open pit mining company in the Southeast United States, and I've seen the reclamation projects. And the land afterwards looks like it was never disturbed. In fact, sometimes it looks better than it did before, and those habitats seem to be coming back. So I don't know if it's entirely fair to say that, you know, the ground is destroyed forever and the habitats are, are gone. You'll never get them back. I don't, I don't know that's accurate. No, and I would agree with you, but I think the message needs to be sent out there that these mines do reclaim that, they reclaim that land. Because when we see a mine go in, we don't ever see a mine that's done with a piece of land. Like, that's never, ever on the news or anything like that. We always see what the mine is doing and the, the startup and the operation. Nobody ever sees what, like, AMI, when the, when they're done mining a piece of land, I don't think I've ever seen those pictures. And that's something that we should be proud of, and I know we are. But the message needs to be sent to the, well, I guess you could just call them the opposition. Uh, yeah, or, or even put into public perception. Yeah, the public the public yeah. always sees the operation of the mine. They never see when it's done, right? And yep, we've exactly. won the like highest level of awards for reclamation in our company. And one time I saw a photo. It was like before, during mining, and after my like a couple years after mining, and it was gorgeous. Like you could have built a golf course on this thing. It was absolutely amazing. I couldn't believe it. Like if you'd have took me there and said, "Oh, five years ago, this is a giant hole in the ground. There were trucks everywhere, and they're mining." you know, clay out of this. There's, I would not have believed you even for a second. It looked pristine. It was great. So knowing that that can be done, I have to imagine that other companies are doing the same thing because the attention is on them. Like Joey said, the attention is on them, but they're losing the narrative battle yeah. massively. And even a guy like Joey, who would be willing to defend them, his first comment in this discussion was, well, we're never going to get that land back. It's disturbed. The habitat's gone. And, he works for a mining company that actively, you know, makes that not true and keeps the habitat and makes it look great. So that just is a great example of how far behind the eight ball these mining companies are in some of these discussions. Well, that's what we know about mining anyway. But let's transition into our guest here today. Our guest here today is John Belkowitz. And as much as we know about mining, he knows that plus some about literally everything. But especially concrete, um, you know, we, we go into this conversation with John, and, and John's been on the program before. We've had Dr. Buckwitz on twice now, so this will be his third time. Um, he is now our most favorite guest. He has he uh, leapfrogged Mr. Betts from Argos. Oh. Yeah. So we'll have to have Ryan Betts on again to reclaim <laughs> his throne as, oh. as the favorite guest of the podcast. Well, we've got other guests interviews that are going to be in the hopper here so they'll be coming out on a nice regular schedule yeah yeah for sure but uh you know dr buckowitz here he originally came on to promote a new book that he has authored um and he actually talks about several other books that they've published in the past that i wasn't aware of so that was interesting but in, in typical 
Dr. Buckwood's fashion, we get about an hour into the interview before he mentions the book. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then we got another hour into the interview before he was like, oh, wait, I have something else to say, but we all had to leave. So it was, it was unfortunate, but it was a great interview. Uh, you can check out Dr. Buckwood's books on blurb.com, the ABCs of ASR. Uh, you guys know John. He's a fantastic speaker. Uh, seems like he's got something going on with these books. Didn't realize he had like 10 books out there. <laughs> and an app, apparently. So yeah. next time we talk to him, we're going to have to ask about his mix design app, too. Yeah, he's got so many irons in the fire. I thought I was busy, like in my work life, personal life, like never sleep. He's got kids on top of everything else that he's doing professionally. Four. Yeah. Four. So I, this man has found a way to extend the amount of hours in a day, and, and you know, good on him. I'm thoroughly impressed with what he's able to accomplish on a daily basis well, and then throughout his career. Well, it's funny. This weekend I had someone ask me, like, you know, we're going through all the things that I do, and they were like, do you ever sleep? I'm like, well, yeah. Have you met Josh Hare? <laughs> uh, you should hear about all the things he's into. <laughs> I don't have kids. Um, I wouldn't have enough time to sustain my current lifestyle and then also have kids. So I'm in awe of, of people who maintain a good work-life balance and maintain a household. It's absolutely phenomenal to me. Uh, you two are, are on my short list of guys where I'm just absolutely amazed at how much you guys are able to accomplish with the time that you have. But then right on the top of that list is John as well. So uh, he'll mention some of that. Uh, we'll get into some topics that keep him so busy on a daily basis, but it's a good listen. It's a great interview, as it always is, with Dr. Buckowitz. So without further ado, here he is. Y'all enjoy. Man, for you, brother. if we can get a Dr. John Belkowitz soapbox rant on this show, I'm about it. Oh, this is going to be a rant. And look, did you hear that? I'm cleaning up my language because all four kids are going to school. So uh, Josh, as you said, we're in Jersey now. Uh, we moved out here with, what was that, four weeks ago? Uh, so we moved out here four weeks ago. And it was, uh, we decided in back in March that we were going to make the move. So we put everything in pods and trucks and trailers. I mean, within a few months, the hardest thing was, you know, it's, it's how does the joke go? Um why are New Yorkers so depressed? And the answer is the light at the end of the tunnel is New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and and for some reason, when people ask me, how difficult is it to get a new technology into the construction industry? I said, well, it's, it's not getting a mortgage or buying a house in New Jersey. Mm. And, you know, living in Colorado on five acres, watching the sunrise every flipping morning was a dream. But living in Colorado is getting much tougher. Um, the water table, the, the, the fires, you know, what, in March, we had March through May, we had five fires within minutes of the house. Um, so we, we decided to make that change, and it wasn't easy. I tell you, as, as tough as I try to seem, I was, I was pretty upset every day. Uh, I loved Colorado. It was my sponsor family's house. It's where we started our business, where we born and raised our kids. It was, um, but it was a, it was a good time to move. Getting a, now that we've moved here with my folks and we have the kids to help us out, Whitney and I could do some reading. 
Um, and I've just been doing a lot more studying, especially other planets and this planet. It's just pretty interesting stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I like how you threw that out there. Like that was like a normal thing to say. Like, yeah, I've been <laughs> doing a lot of research and studying on you know exoplanets. I <laughs> would learn is awesome. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if you guys reached out to um, any of the folks at at NASA or Icon 3D or Apis Core or who's the other one with Sib? Not Sib, Contourcraft. Yeah. Who are there's a lot of folks who NASA is paying to do research on building lunar structures or structures on Mars. And I, I love the idea of it. I love the rapid pace and the amount of money, but the idea of putting a, a cementitious composite on a, a planet that goes from negative 287 degrees Fahrenheit to positive 280 or 237 degrees Fahrenheit in a 14 day earth cycle. That's the lunar cycle. Like concrete won't last, right? <laughs> Unless you're protecting it, and, and you know, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that we've done to study on that. But it just seems like the dumbest flipping idea in the world. So I, I economics don't work anyway. Unless you're going to make the lunar cement on the, you can't fly cement up there in the spaceship. Yes, Joey's you already can. done that research. You can <laughs> what? It costs a lot of money. Yeah, it costs. Why there's a wonderful book written by evan loomis called elon musk this book is all about rockets and in the book you know you or this book is about rockets in the book you meet elon musk who likes to build rockets and every single rocket explodes like you think he was making money off of that you saw him see a rocket explode oh sorry he saw a rocket explode. He's like, oh, there's that profit margin going up. No, 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 no. This, this, uh, this endeavor that we're doing to build a structure on the moon is almost like, you know, it's, it, it's one of those pivotal moments in our history, almost like the Cold War era where, you know, we're going up against Russia, but we've got to show how many, the military might is greater. Or, you know, we're, we're one of the European nations that has to, you know, plant its flag. Building a structure on the moon is is that milestone that we're trying to get to before any other country. And you want to bet your sweet bippy other countries. I don't know what a sweet bippy is, by the way. Um, are doing are doing the same thing. So um, anyway, yeah, I would love for you guys to have Jason Ballard or uh, Alex Leroy or Larue, excuse me, or Dimitri Julius. Any of those jabronis from. Uh, NASA, that would be great. You, I think you would love it because it reminds me that what you would do to them is what you would do to co- what you did to Colin Lobo. And I can't remember who said it, but you're like, what do you think is going to happen in the next so many years with this? And Colin's like, well, I don't have the data to make that prediction. And I can't remember which one of you three said it. And you're like, well, come on, Colin. Why do you think you're on this show? We do that here. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, you guys, best show. I think it's time to make the transition from acti- active minerals to. No, I, we appreciate that. There's nothing in this world we'd love more than being able to do the show way more. It's funny. We try to tell people if you hear the show too often, that means we're not busy enough selling acts, Joe. Because when you don't hear the show, that's because Joey was out at two ready mix plants last week and installing tanks in two different places. And Josh was out 
putting uh, a new uh, third-party warehouse together while also servicing like this Amazon-type project that's going on. Oh, and by the way, I was on the West Coast because I was attending conferences and different things. So it's just one thing after another, and that's just one week, and that's every week. So Bless. we have to we schedule time in our days. Like, all right, we are going to do this because we love this, and we're going to make yeah. this happen, even if it means we're going to work twelve hours a day. We're going to get this done. Yeah. So there was a question I wanted to ask you guys, and there was an endeavor that I wanted to start with all of our free time that we have. It's been pissing me off so much. You guys remember the P2P movement? P2P? It sounds familiar. Yeah, P2P. Man, were you guys still in school? P2P was the prescriptive to performance movement. It started, I want to say, back in 2005, 2006, and really ramped up in 2006, 2007 timeframe. So yes, we were okay. at university during that time, and Dr. Brown at Middle Tennessee State was like huge into that. I think Tennessee DOT was like one of the first places that was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you yeah. can meet all the specs. You can design it however you want. And where is the P2P movement today? I haven't followed, brother. You told me. The P2P movement went through what we call, there's a, a lovely Wired Magazine article published back in... I want to say 2002, 2012 on something called the hype curve. And what it is, is you have a technology that's introduced to the industry. It starts at point zero and the industry and marketing starts to sell it. And there's this gradual increase of expectation until we get to the peak of inflated expectations. And then all of a sudden the contractors get it, you know, like self-consolidating concrete, you know, it's going to save the effing world. And then the contractors get it, and then it goes, and it hits something called the trough of disillusionment, right? Right? It's just this, this drop. Now, if the technology is awesome or it finds a foothold in the industry that, that truly matters, then it gets to this, this path of enlightenment, right? And this is where it finds its anchor and its foundation in the industry for us to build on. So when it comes to SCC, when it comes to P2P, a little bit of RCC, you know, there was an inflation of expectation or inflated expectations in this trough of disillusionment. And the same thing happened with P2P. That's where I met Rich Seishi the first time. You know, he was giving a presentation on high volume fly ashes or mixes. And this was it. This was in 2006, the Ultra High Performance Concrete Convention in Dallas, Texas. And Rich was giving a talk on two things. He gave a talk on 50% Class F fly mixes for uh, fast track early mixes, mixes that got 5,000 psi or you know 8,000 psi in like 12 hours or 24 hours. And Rich is just like, you're you're lying if you think you're going performance and you're being sustainable when you're creating these mixes because, you know, they had powder contents of a thousand pounds or 1200 pounds. Um, and then he also talked about the great cement shortage of 2017. But, but anyway, you know, with this, this P2P movement, nothing ever came out of it. It never came out of that trough of disillusionment because there was no real benefit value out of performance. Industry wasn't buying that. And, and with carbon negative concrete, and carbon neutral concrete, 
I read an ACI, and I'm sorry to call this guy out, the president's address about, you know, what is it, chasing carbon-neutral concrete? And if you look in part one and part two, there is no true definition about carbon-neutral concrete. And I, I, I ask the people, I ask your listeners, I ask you, what the is the def? See, I didn't cuss. See, I didn't cuss. <laughs> Because right now my eight-year-old uses the F word better than I do. <laughs> True statement. Um, what is the definition of carbon negative concrete? What is the definition of carbon? And I'm not asking you to do that right now, but I want somebody to freaking sit down and write it down. And if they can't do it, I have no problem. So what is the definition of either carbon neutral concrete or carbon negative concrete? I think we should take a stab at it. Josh, how would you define that? <laughs> Please and thank you. Ignoring ignoring enough variables for you to say that it's carbon negative. <laughs> uh, 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 come on. That's how you or make paying carbon off, negative. Buying enough carbon credits that you can call you. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I want a real – I want us to put a stake in the freaking ground and say, hey, if we're going to – have a movement because that's what ACI did. Everybody was standing and shaking hands over this freaking piece of paper. Like, come on. Like, there is a definition. This, I think, this is a waste of money, a waste of resources. Just like I saw another Roman concrete freaking article published using US taxpayer money. Like, we get it. <laughs> they use seawater. Who gives a who cares? <laughs> I, I love it because in the last interview we had with, with Dr. Buckowitz here, he, he referenced Roman concrete <laughs> and how much he hated articles about it. I don't know if you went back and listened to our Carbon Central uh, podcast we did at the end of last year. So we did a deep dive into this whole uh, reducing carbon footprint in our industry and what it means for the world. And we actually did the research that other people aren't doing. So the number you hear thrown around is that our industry, and they combine cement and concrete, is that there's 8% output, CO2 output, that we are responsible for globally. And number one, you can't really think in global terms on this because you can only control what you can control. And we can control, to some degree, what happens in our country. So we're going to look at our country alone. What does our industry represent as CO2 emissions in our country? Well, that's really about 3% when you combine cement and concrete. And then take it a step further, take a, do a life cycle analysis of what it really means to measure the impact of concrete. And some people know now because we exposed it, but concrete, cured, hardened concrete is a carbon sink. So for every one ton of CO2 that goes out, 0.6 tons of CO2 are getting taken back up into the concrete. So the net effect that we have to deal with here, we're representing maybe, maybe 1.4% of all CO2 emissions here in the United States. And yet our industry wants to do things that are not maximizing efficiency not maximizing performance, not maximizing profits either. To do what? Reduce 1% of 
of CO2. You know what's a better idea, John? Why don't we go replace every asphalt road out there with concrete? Because you know what? There's not a number on. There's not a number on how much CO2 is being produced by the asphalt industry. There isn't one. We looked. Well, Nobody's looked harder than we looked. We looked. So we went and we compiled all different numbers from many different sources, and we came up right. with a number. And guess what they are? They're actually probably around 8% yeah. in the United States. So if they're 8% and we're 1.4% and we can switch those around, guess who's going to end up better? You know, I, I – I'm not going to disagree with that. The problem with that is, is that, and and this is the harsh reality. I don't give a about the asphalt industry. They can't have any of my time, and that's not even to be jealous of the lobbyists that they hire or the luck that they have. I have to worry about my industry, your industry, and. And I, I, I agree with everything you just said, except for the fact that, you know what? Asphalt industry is employing a lot of people. They're somehow getting under the radar. There's only 24 hours and 20 minutes in the, in the day. The government decided to take 20 minutes away from me for freaking leap year. So I only have 24 hours in the day. And for some reason, I need to sleep. So... <laughs> So anyway, so my computer is not working. Do you guys, one of you guys mind looking up carbon negative material? Because there is a definition out there on carbon negative material. And I believe it's the amount of materials embodied in creating the material through its entire life. That means cradle to grave as in landfilling as well, has to be a negative output. So it actually has to take carbon from the environment and a carbon neutral material not talking concrete, carbon neutral material, it has to be net zero. There, whether the material it pulls from the environment as well as the material that, uh, or the carbon that it, excuse me, the carbon it pulls from the environment and the carbon that is created net zeros out or becomes zero, um, or it's just so carbon, like, whatever it is, it, it equals zero. The equation equals zero. Carbon negative, it's negative CO2 pounds per whatever, whatever. Um, so did any, was anybody able to look that up? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you pretty much summarized it pretty well. Is that what we're saying with concrete for both carbon negative and carbon neutral? Well, that's what we were going to say earlier. You get on these great rules, brother. We're not going to interrupt you when you're doing this, uh, cause we love you. And we yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But our definition of what would you say a carbon neutral, carbon negative concrete is, and as if you take the life cycle analysis of the sum of the parts that are making up the industry's function and you put them together, they should equal zero or less than zero carbon output. Entire life cycle. Correct. So from when it was before it was pulled out of the ground, because cradle is, is assuming that it's already been born, that it's in the cradle. But for me to get rock, I have to clear out the ground. I have to, rip out the rock or I have to blow up the rock, rip it up or dredge it up. And I have to bring the equipment to dredge it. I have to bring the equipment to. So that's my first problem. Where do we start this? Yeah, that's fair. Do we start it with bringing the equipment out to the job site too? And when I say the job site, I mean the, the quarry or even the place where we're getting limestone. So let, let's ignore that for a second. Let's say we start at cradle that all our materials, they just happen magically appear. 
I'm trying to imagine a world where we're doing where where that happens, and before that, I'm in the information gathering phase, and it, during that phase, I read the ACI president's letter about reaching carbon neutrality. And he immediately goes to reducing embodied carbon and carbon emissions. There's no carbon neutrality. And, and I, I think I'm getting to where you guys have already gone to is that this is not really an effort for our industry to do better for our children and the planet. This is an effort to sell something. Is that a fair assessment? We've been harping on that. Uh, encourage anyone to go back and listen. So our episode where we spent 40 minutes deep diving into that exact point when all the drivers of this are multinational mega corporations that are coming to our country and telling us how we need to run our businesses. And they're being propped up by either NGOs or in industry related organizations that just don't have the manpower to combat the messaging that we're seeing coming out of these corporations. And if I may, real quick, I'm a famous Please. conspiratorial, and I would like to add that every environmental initiative since the damn 70s has been about selling something, not about helping the planet. Why does that have a stigma to it, being a conspiracy theorist? Have you read Tim O'Neill's like CIA and Marilyn Manson? <laughs> hey, hey, listen, that, that, that new Tim O'Neill book that was on the uh, Joe Rogan podcast, he spent 20 years being a conspiracy theorist. That's a dope book. That's yeah. an amazing book if you've never read it. Anyway, I, I, I'm not going to discount that. And if you really want it to be carbon negative, carbon neutral, I tell you, Matt McCombs, from, formerly from Morton Marietta and now at Intelligent Concrete, said if people were really serious about carbon negative, salespeople would call up the job site before the concrete was released. That is the first way. The first way on a new job site to be carbon neutral or even carbon negative, that you make sure everybody is ready and you don't have to throw out a truck, right? Bring them some donuts too. Maybe you created a little bit of methane. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Joey and I have known Matt McCombs for years. I mean, what, seven, eight years now? Have you guys listened to our last podcast on maturity? No, I didn't, but I saw it going out on LinkedIn. They were offering gift cards for good questions. I'm very glad I wasn't on an airplane when I was reading that. I would have won that gift card. <laughs> Dude, Matt and I, it was a friggin' no-holds-barred cage match from the WWF. Not the WWE bullshit. <laughs> like, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Well, I was taking the stance where if somebody's not going to pay to do the ASTMC 1074 correctly as a consultant, I'm not going to work with them. If you're not willing to put the proper amount of work into the 1074, get the datum temperature, use it the right way, there's going to be way too much money lost. And depending on the job site, certain factor of safety that I can't predict, I don't want to be a part of that. You bring up like you don't want to be a part of this project because uh, really liability is the word you're dancing around there. Right. And that's what Colin Lobo said was the reason we don't have performance-based specs. And he said it, it ended up too much liability. Uh, and that's why I want you to interview Rich. If you could write this down, one of the questions is, is the same that you would ask Colin, 
which is why don't we have performance? And I'm not going to spoil this, but Rich has a different answer. And bear in mind, Rich used to sell, and I think he still sells, around 1.2 million cubic yards a year. Now, uh, another thing, not to put in a tag in here for ActiGel, because I, I would like to get to the book here in a second. If somebody was really serious about carbon negative or carbon neutral concrete, they would use the hell out of crusher fines and concrete, right? Yeah. They would use as many FN crusher fines as they could. And to do that, you've got to use something like ActiGel. For a little bit of ActiGel, you can use a ton of crusher fines. Again, is that true? Oh, but it costs money. I hate it when people say that, by the way. Oh, it costs money. <laughs> right? Well, most of the time we can save them money by being able to use that many crusher fines. Depends on where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Or you but, have to bring that same if the expectation, well, that, that's another discussion. The, the expectation that something that saves the environment should save us money is just freaking ludicrous. But yeah, it's, it's hard. It's ridiculous. Not existent in some places, but in some places it is. Yeah, no, you're right. And I appreciate you saying that. Um, everybody knows we do this podcast as a discussion on concrete, not a discussion about ActiGel. So, Joey, I just sent you via uh, Messenger uh, that clip that I did on the book. Do you guys mind if I mention the book? No, please. No, we, that was the point, the uh, genesis of you coming on. So we absolutely are going to do that. And we want to know what the hell you're writing. This isn't – I mean, we're interested. I, I've been writing books for a while. You know, um, um, we have a bunch of books out. David Mallory um, wrote some books. You know, I wrote some book. I wrote a book with David. I wrote a book with Mallory. Um, it's you know, we got the Concrete Moss book, the ABCs of ASR, the ABCs of Epic Concrete Failures, the one two threes of Concrete and ABCs of Concrete Strength. Very one two three and ABC. I just realized. Um, so we're very trying to take the basics of concrete and make them palatable for you know, a larger industry, especially the ABCs of ASR. The Concrete Moss book is more like a photojournalism thing. It's just concrete and moss really make a beautiful thing. <laughs> Dangerous, but beautiful. So the book, the, the reason why I started writing the book is because um, there's so much f up concrete and so much great concrete. The clip, Joey, that I sent you, and if you don't mind sending it to the other guys, is... You know, just looking at all the different concrete over the last 60 years, because some of the original concrete from the sidewalks is still in place. And you can actually track the change in aggregate. You know, you could see where it started out, three-quarter, one-inch, rounded river rock, really, really pretty stuff. And then you can see where they started going out of state or, you know, to a new source and the rock color started changing. And then eventually there was this change over to a crushed quartz or not a crushed quartz or a crushed granite. Um, and it was a combination of crushed granite with this alluvial rock. And then ultimately, you know, was it five years ago, seven years ago, they did this major changeover with, you know, just 100% crushed aggregate. And you can see this throughout this 1.55 mile loop. So, you know, doing, you know, dedicating a chapter to the change in aggregate might not interest a lot of people. Um, but to me, it's one of the things that tells a story about what concrete is going through and the damages that, 
you know, especially in certain parts where they put an excessive amount of salt, you can see how the concrete just kind of withered away. Um, and then, you know, we have a, a chapter called the hammer of Thor where, um, you know, you got a lot of landscaping here and you got trucks that back over the concrete and it's, you know, four inch thick concrete that was designed at 4,000 PSI with no steel and no real subgrade to it. So it can handle a truck driving over it with a 24 inch wheelbase. Right. And of course that, that doesn't work. Um, so what we did is in one chapter, we're analyzing a lot of these and it happens throughout this run, just where you can see the wheelbases from the concrete or from the truck in the concrete. And then um, several pop-outs. Oh, my favorite is, I call them, uh, the chapter's called Toe Clippers and Trippers. Toe Clippers and Trippers. Um, where I'm going on the run and you'll either have, you know, a little edge like this or maybe a one-inch edge of the concrete being lifted up. And what happened was they did the concrete panels in two sections to four sections and they only concrete slab is four inches thick and the joint is maybe a quarter of an inch maybe three eighths of an inch thick and lo and behold the joint didn't activate so when they were settling underneath the slab and when the trees you know they putting a lot of these oaks these white american oaks these maple trees you know the inner diameter is like five feet four feet from the slab and it's literally lifting up the concrete and you have some slabs that have been lifted six inches, eight inches into the air. So we, we go over the analysis about how that happens, what forces need to be generated to lift a concrete slab six inches into the air, eight inches into the air, um, go over the science and the engineering. And then there's a section on how to stop it from happening. Like with the, the hammer of Thor, when they're driving over the concrete slab, go buy some AM2 matting from a DRMO, from military freaking auction. You know, for 50 bucks, you could put some aluminum over it and stop the concrete from freaking getting destroyed. Like, you've done it how many freaking times? Like, is, is it surprising that concrete is not good in flexural strength? Do people not know this shit? <laughs> Especially concrete without steel in it. Like, what the F? Really interesting. This, this book, um, are you going to send me a signed copy of it? Sure, you buy a signed copy. I'll send you a signed copy, brother. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Shit, any of the books that you buy on Blurb, and I'll send you guys the freaking link. Any of those books that you buy on Blurb, I'm going to have to send it to Joey. Gosh, Joey's just, everybody loves Joey. I'll send it to Joey on, um, on what's it called? On, um, what is this called? Messenger? Uh, because if I do anything on my computer, it'll shut down. Blurb plus Belkowitz. Brother, if you send me the copy of that book, I will freaking sign it for you. I'll draw a picture. The ABCs of ASR. Here you go. Here's a good one. The Concrete Moss book um, is definitely the prettiest book I think we have. Um, the ABCs of ASR, the 123s, and the ABCs of Concrete Strength, Tensile Strength, and Modulus Elasticity. That one's really interesting. There's things in there I learned about concrete that I should have learned in college. Like Moe's Circle, I hate Moe's Circle, and this thing made Moe's Circle freaking awesome. Um, right. So, you, you know, with, with the trees being so close, you know, I, I'd like to talk about one of the fixes. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but Freehold, New Jersey is one of the bamboo capitals of the United States. What? 
I know, no. right? Like there is a major bamboo provider and not just one type of bamboo, like 50 or 60 different types of bamboo. My dad has a bamboo forest. I bought him two types of bamboo. Like, how does that, what? Like, how do you have bamboo in Freehold, New Jersey? Did you guys ever watch Harold and Kumar go to White Castle? Yeah, not, not since college, <laughs> but yeah, we saw. All right, all right. So not since college, one of the major actors in there, what's his name? Kal Penn Modi? Ken Paul Modi? Kal Penn Modi? Went to the same high school as him here in Freehold Township. Like, hmm. Bruce Springsteen, Freehold Borough. Right? Like, it's just Freehold is an awesome place. It's a shame it's in New Jersey. You know, there was a great moment in a kid's film recently, The Adams Family. And The Adams Family is uh, talking about, so, so they're like in their uh, haunted mansion. The movie starts, they're in this haunted mansion, but it's like uh, years ago and the townspeople riot and they force them out of their home and they're forced to leave. And that's the start of the movie. And uh, they're packed up in their cars, head down the highway, and they're, they're like, we just had to go to the most awful, despicable, dirtiest, nastiest place we could think of. And then you see him and says, welcome to New Jersey. <laughs> right. Camden, New Jersey. Hey, you know what? Nothing for nothing. New Jersey is a beautiful place. They call it the Garden State, not because it's the armpit of America. You know, um, you know, there are places that I think fulfill that motto more so than Jersey and the orchards out here, um, the forests, you know, it's just, I did miss living on the East coast. I mean, it is beautiful. I mean, shoot Pennsylvania, Paul, when we were driving through, I mean, there are parts of Pennsylvania that I forgot about. Shoot. We're going to Dutch wonderland next week. Are you really, we're talking about going there in two weeks. Yeah, we're heading out there. There's a balloon festival in Strausburg or or Lidditz or whatever the hell it's called. Up Lidditz there, is in the right middle of nowhere, but there's a nice quarry over there. You need some good rock. We're gonna go check out a freaking quarry. Um, <laughs> so so the you know the you know the books that we're doing, they're all about having fun with concrete. Um, none of them have been put on the you know New York Times bestseller list almost. No, that's not true. That's not true. That's a lot. But we did have, we had like this huge month when all these books, we, you know, especially it was the ABC's ASR. Like it was like 15 books being bought. I was like, holy shit. Like this is it. It's about to take off. Yeah, it turned out to be me buying books from my family. So, um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh that's <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, so definitely we'll send you guys some books. Um, and what we do, what we used to do is we used to have a book writing competition at Intelligent Concrete and we had seven, um, a, a board of seven, um, um, judges, you know, everybody from Brian Green to, uh, Robert Lewis, uh, Chuck Weiss, Paul Bryant, you know, folks from the Army Corps and different engineering firms. And they chose the top book. We published all the books. But the top book, the writers got a $200 gift card. Um, we published their book first. We paid for everything. And then we bought them um, and the whole team their books too. So um, we're bringing that back. We're reviving that. And, uh, yeah, we're writing a few books this year. Next two years, excuse me. So it's pretty. And we are looking for 
the book that I'm writing, The Concrete on My Block, we are looking for sponsors. We figured out it's going to cost us, and we pay for everything. So a book like this will cost us somewhere around fifteen to $25,000 to write, um, and that's with sweat equity. Um, but we need to hire some photographers you know, um, to get this done. Um, so if any of your listeners are, you know, encouraged to be part of a book and they want to be part of the profit sharing, you know, we're willing to give them a piece. Maybe I should discuss that with Whitney first. I should discuss that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd like to get to the last thing because, um, Whitney and I have a story for you for the concrete mix design. And we needed your guys's input on this because I feel I'm right. And of course, Whitney is always right. So, um, yeah. yeah, well, real quick, before we jump into that, did you rethink of how you're going to tell us the solution to the trees? Like, slap oh, my gosh, that's what it was. Because I wanted to know yeah, the yeah. answer to that. When you were telling me the problem, I was like, wow, I wish I knew how to solve that other than like cutting the root <laughs> and removing it. Well, the, 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 the solution of it starts when you plant the tree. And this is why I was going into bamboo. And I, I totally forgot about the bamboo story. I apologize. So when, if you don't treat bamboo the right way, it can take over your entire yard. So when we first got bamboo, it takes about two years for it to really take off. We didn't know that when it takes off, the roots go down, they shoot across, and they come up wherever the, they want to. Um, so we were about two and a half years, three years and my mom, we're still, we're, we're living with mom and dad. Sammy was either just born or before he was born. And, um, my mom is pulling out bamboo roots and shoots from the other side of the fence. And I'm telling you, my dad has a bamboo. I'll send you guys pictures. And I, we go back to the guy. We're like, listen, we didn't plant the bamboo here. Why is it growing? And that's when he told us. So he came back with these plastic, hard plastic sheets that went about four feet into the ground. And his guys drove these sheets on either side of the bamboo four feet into the ground to stop the bamboo roots from migrating under the fence and into the rest of the yard. So the way to solve that, and yeah, it has to be done early. Um, What you'll see in some of these pictures, like I said, is that the roots a lot of these maple trees, oaks, um, um, wisterias, they have very shallow roots and they'll raise the ground up and they'll crawl underneath the concrete and just raise the concrete up and drop other slabs. So the way to address that is the same way that you would do with bamboo shoots and roots. Ooh, that rhymed. Is that you're driving down a barrier to protect that concrete from the root system. You can't go, if you go back and you start chopping down the roots what happens is the tree loses its stability and it starts turning and Mm -hmm. we have pictures of that they folks have done that where they've literally done like a you know geotechnical hazard where they've cut through the roots they've Mm -hmm. tossed everything to the right and they put in a concrete or a brand new concrete slab and now you can see that the tree is doing this which is pretty cool but that's why we have a lot of problems during storms right now that that's interesting. You know, it's always been fascinating to me that you take something as hard and strong as concrete and it almost always loses when it's competing for space against something else. Well, that's because it's a rigid material. It's a rigid material that doesn't have any resiliency, especially residential concrete to the t- the forces that are, are created, uh, you know, residual forces, tensile and shear 
forces that overcome the capacity of concrete's ability. So essentially in effect makes it brittle and when compared to things that well it's already a brittle material but like you have grass growing in a concrete joint how the hell does grass and it's not the grass it's the accumulation of soil and grass that then absorbs water that then continuously builds up pressure almost like asr gel how the hell does asr gel a jelly the same thing you put on your toast how's that going to destroy my concrete well it's not the jam or jelly it's the residual forces, the confining forces that create a residual stress that overcome the tensile and shear capacity of the hydrated cement matrix. Although we understand that, and you articulated it beautifully, by the way. Thank you, But sir. although we understand that's the answer, like on its face, like that's just wild. Thanks. Well, I mean, you look at technology... I wouldn't say it always loses. There are some instances where concrete has won out, um, but it's not titanium, right? And that, that's the reality. Like, um, you know, we can go back to calcium oxychloride formation. How does the icing salt? Like, what? What do, you, what do you mean we're using calcium hydroxide to create a more expansive uh, hydration or, or phase that has less strength in the hydrated cement matrix, but for some reason, turns it into rubble how does that make sense so uh, i i think there's you know there was a, a moment i was doing my master's degree when i realized that everything we understood about concrete from cradle to grave is a freaking guess and funny enough my my dog pissed on my advisor's desk at the very same moment that's a true story <laughs> true story I had a little 5.2-pound dog named Ferdinand the Bull Belkowitz. He was a Maltese poodle mix. That's how I proposed to Whitney. And I had, I had been reading um, Andrew Allen's paper on uh, the calcium silicate hydrate. No, it was I.G. Richardson's paper, Calcium Silicate Hydrate 1. And it was talking about the development of the Hadley grain structure when we go into this, or not the Hadley grain structure, the calcium oxy or calcium hydroxide shell that we get after the mixing phase and we go into the dormancy period. And I asked the question, well, how do we know it's just calcium hydroxide? How thick is that shell? How long does it last and how strong is it? And I called up a few people and I believe one of them was Andrew Allen. And I want to know a definitive answer. And he goes, well, and I was like, I'm Jewish. I know what that well means. When somebody goes, when somebody goes, well, you know, that means like there's a little bit of artistic hand waving. You know, you know, we know, we don't know. You know, it's a very specific cement we were using. We were mixing in and very, we were using an ultrasonicator. We had a water cement ratio, blah, blah, blah. So uh, for this cement, we're guessing that it was around 10 microns thick at certain points and that was a model that we did like whoa what do you mean and it just my entire world just came crashing down um you you kind of take that to the practical side you know it's not that everything that we the practical level understands about concrete is a guess it's they're not even guessing you know concrete is a commodity based material to me the most technical concrete in the world is the residential concrete products, right? 
They have to do some of those amazing things. And we've got to cure up overnight. The, and I hate to say this, but the lowest end of the finishing industry is working on it, right? The least amount of cement, it has to cost the least. Like it, it, and it's 80% of what we do. What we do is a guess. What the industry does with our concrete is worse than a guess. And trying to educate that, like ACI, ACI lost its path, and I'm an ACI member. I really like going to ACI conventions, but ACI lost its path many, many moons ago. And I, I think there needs to be a, um, a change up to the industry, ACI specifically, ASCE, ASTM. Um, so that we can start getting into the practical level a lot more. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, doing an uphill battle uh, going at Mach 10. Did, did, did I go through that fix for you? Did I answer that question? Yeah, no, the fix was great. And you know, it's a shame that you think ACI lost its way. But I know that you uh, do put considerable time into the yeah. things they put out and try to understand of what they're saying, what their way is, what the guidance is they're giving to the industry. And I believe that's where we're headed next. Yeah. We have one of the greatest opportunities ever in the ACI industry since we had Ken Hover as president, right? Ken Hover was, was my favorite ACI president. It wasn't maybe Ann Ellis comes in a second place, but Charles Namai happens to be one of the coolest cats in the concrete industry. And I had the pleasure of meeting him in a very forgetful meeting. I'm sure he doesn't remember who I am, but it was just after he gave a presentation at the World of Concrete back in 2003, or I'm sorry, 2005. I was still in college, you know, going for another degree. And he gave a talk that rivaled Mike Thomas's talk on concrete admixtures. And who better to give a talk on concrete admixtures? Uh, and I believe he's somebody who at one point understood the industry, especially the chemical side of the industry. Um, but I have not been impressed with, you know, the direction that we're going, as we've already talked about. Now, my belief is if you don't like something, then be a part of the solution. Just don't gripe and complain about it. And I love complaining. Oh, I'm so good. I Whitney will tell you I'm good at complaining. True story. Um so yeah, I, I'm part of ACI. I do the best I can working for free, and that's what most people do. But it has become an academic endeavor. Um, we have long since left the, the consensus-based industry. 80% of what we do is in the dust somewhere back there at ACI. So it's an unfortunate reality, and I'd love to have an argument about that with folks. I'd love to be proven wrong too, but... No, it does feel very academic when you go there. Um, but people ask us all the time, how, how come you're not, am I going to see you at ACI? How come you're not ever at ACI? I right. mean, some of our best friends in the industry who we respect a ton. And it's like, well, what are we really getting done? That's our answer to them. It's like, we're Networking. in the business of, it's all right. That's about the only thing. Networking. Uh, us, like, we are every week installing a new plants. So, whatever value we're getting out of that has to be more valuable than that. And at this moment in our lives, I don't know. It's tough. Well, networking, it's not an immediate return on investment. You're planting a seed. And what, what I would say is that it's not just networking. It's also building a community to support the effort. 
And just because it's academic doesn't mean it's bad. What's bad is that the lessons, because that's what academic was for, right? It was to figure out things that, were, that are happening messed up in the field and, and, and then other research endeavors, not just research for the sake of research, but the research for the sake of growth. So we need people like you to stand up in a presentation and be like, so how the hell am I going to use this day to day? Because a lot of people won't know how to answer that question. And that realization that, that uh, maybe this is me just hoping because um, in my own committees, and I have, I have made this complaint, so I'm the chair of ACI 241A, the application of nanotechnology and concrete. It used to be the application and the implementation, but he changed it. And I have been trying to get case studies published for years that go over how to use generic nanotechnologies and concrete. And they've been shut down because a lot of the folks who have voted on them, this was my complaint, a lot of folks who vote on them don't understand why these are important. There's enough academic papers that talk about what we've done in the lab. Well, sure as shit, the lab and the field are two totally different monsters. And what I can magically make happen in the lab Blah 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 doesn't happen in the field as magically. Right, lab lab creates a hell of a drug. Right, hell of a drug, hell of a drug. So anyway, yeah, I, I would. I am one of those people that is going to tell you guys, hey, come on out to ACI. We'll we'll have dinner, right? We'll go have a nice steak dinner, you know, chat, hang out, make fun of people, you know, allow people to make fun of us, you know, when we give presentations. Come out to ACI. You know, I'll go to your committees. You guys come to my committees, right? You know, the best time to give a presentation is the morning after an open bar. And what? right, people can't ask you questions, and if they ask you questions, they mean it because they're all glazy eyed and tired, and hungover. If they're even there in the first place. Oh, they're That's there. They always. You know, when you give a presentation, there's always somebody in the room who's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. That's not how I would do it. Yeah, you're usually that guy, John. <laughs> I, I have gone into fights with people. Like, I have threatened 80-year-old men to, come on, let's go outside. You know, um, my Uncle Rob has had to pull me out of meetings before. Somebody had once suggested that we go from three cylinders for ASTM C39 and the ACIs, what is it, ACI, oh, I can't remember, 302, 301, 309, whatever it is, from three cylinders per break date down to one or two because that's what the industry is doing. I about lost my bananas, like just unglued, and I had... Katie Bartagey from the Bureau of Reclamation, Bud Werner from CTL Thompson, pulling me out of the room. And Bud Werner reset what I said in human speak. He was like, that's the dumbest thing you've ever said. Haven't you read Dr. Bright Mather's work? You moron. I was about to say, is there any topic that was more thoroughly researched than like how many breaks you have to have? And uh, like inner lab between each technician making a very specific concrete and then they round robined it found all these places and found exactly what the precision of bias was and said you know for any given cylinder made by a, a given tech on the same day with the same materials you're going to have this much variation and so right. what are the variables that you got to look out for with cylinder deformation all the other things if you have one 
I guess that's just just a guess. Yeah, this is what we think it is. If one or it's on the job site and it gets ruined on the way to the lab. No, how many times? Yeah, how many times (laughs) has that happened? Have you guys talked to Mister Subcheck about the time that he dropped a cylinder of Mooncrete? No. Yeah, you need to interview Mister Subcheck too, or ask Mister Betts about Mister Subcheck. Right, but yeah, basically, yeah, he's Kevin. From Colorado too. He's from Colorado too, right? Or that's where well, well, that's where he worked, and I think he's still in Colorado. I haven't talked to him in a few years. But Mr. Subcheck and Mr. Betts went to school together at Alpena, and then they also started together with Mr. Nowak and Mr. Geyer. And I don't know why we called them all Misters. They were all younger than us. But oh, Mr. Geyer, we ended up calling him the Governor. All right, Whitney, Governor Geyer. Um, but yeah, Kevy and, and Ryan went to school together and then they started at Lafarge together. But yeah, Kevin was working for some research lab and he was taking a cart out of a humidity room and had like two or three cylinders on it of mooncrete and hit a bump and it just fell over onto the floor. So if you had one cylinder and the guy was hung over and he hits a, not that Kevin was, but he hits a bump, bump, that's what I was yelling when I was being drugged out of the room by Katie. I was cussing. Oh. Yeah, I bet you were. I mean, it made us mad. We're not even in that world anymore. I mean, we, we have a right lab, but it's not, you know, I'm not doing a multi-million dollar project. I'm trying to prove somebody's something is or isn't true, usually. What happens is people are making these decisions because you guys are not in the room, especially Joey. You know, Joey was in the room, shit. But, you know, it's... <laughs> It, it, there needs to be the practical side that says technical timeout. You know that maybe in your perfect little world, when you have a robot that picks up your cylinder and puts it into your machine, that works. John, I think the the disconnect between the field and academia, and uh, you know what you're describing, I think that can be plugged into almost any industry or community or whatever. And while you were talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, I'm in the the hunting and conservation realm and that's exactly, you know, the issues that we, we see too, uh, guys in the field versus, you know, the, the state agencies or whatever, the biologists, you know, doing the work. And you could probably plug that into, you know, Josh into the racing world. You know, I'm sure there's guys that just race and there are guys that do all kinds of tests and you could probably find white papers on racing information. And then Paul for like golf. The same thing could be said for golf. There's the guys in the field that just stay in the field and kind of stay in their own little world. And then there are, you know, kind of the other side where there's a lot of research going on that could really benefit the guys in the field if they would just step in and listen and vice versa. Well, yeah, any, anytime there's a, a huge number of variables and concrete is certainly one of the best, the best examples of that. There's a huge number of variables and in the lab you can control said variables and in the field you can't. So, I mean, that. That's basically uh, what, you know, that's especially what it is in racing. I mean, there's so many variables. You you don't even think about half of them, let alone try to control them. My favorite one for golf, uh, people doing something cool in the lab that never translated in the field. It hit the ball perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there's actually great technology for that where they design the face of a driver. Um, they call it twist face. But what it really is, is that the outside edges of the driver are actually slightly curved oh, inward. Like so even if, you, even if you miss hit on the toe or the heel above, the ball still goes straight. So, But one technology uh, aspect that they didn't think about was sound. So they designed like 
the most impressive drive we've ever seen. It was this, you know, great titanium alloy, tungsten, whatever, titanium face. It's unbelievably hot. The driver will just, it'll just send it a mile. But it sounded like you were, like, hitting a steel pole with a uh, an aluminum baseball bat. It was just the most horrible ting, like, really loud. It was shot out of a cannon. Nobody ever bought it. So all that, so that's, that's like the lab creep, not transferring the field, but even worse, it's like more like uh, the John Carter movie where this went through a lot of people, (laughs) a lot of people (laughs) thought it was was a good idea. I think it's okay to share stuff that doesn't fit perfectly in an academic journal when you're talking about concrete field work. And when you see guys, one, one example that we've seen in our career is rebound of shot creek right. applied into tunnels. And when you can stop that from happening, it's real. And it right. it saves people not just time and money. It's a safety thing, and it's massive. Right. And we've seen that in person. And when you go to try and quantify that, and everybody's like, well, I don't know how to quantify it. Well, I do. Look right. at the ground. There ain't nothing on right. the ground. Yeah. And look right. at you guys. They're clean. Oh, and by the way, you didn't bring 10 pallets of bags down here. You brought eight pallets, right. eight pallets of bags down here to break and spray into this right. tunnel. So, you know, there's not always like the perfect equation. I'm sorry to tell you that. But intelligent concrete, we're big fans. And I really, uh, I really want to take just one second. You had our bet that we we're making the $1 about the carbon neutrality fading away. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, really put a time frame on that measurable goal of failure. But although like in our hearts, the three guys hosting this podcast, we're actually on the same side as you on this bet. Um, But just to play devil's advocate, we'll still take your dollar on the other side, because I'm not sure that logically uh, we see it failing as fast as I think you mentioned earlier. And, uh, really quickly, just a couple, three reasons why. Um, one is that the major cement plants, even in the United States, have already started converting their production to including cements. They're not including cements. 100% of cements that have uh, what they're claiming is a lower carbon footprint. That's number one. Oh, the one else? Yeah. So I have a theory on that one too. Well, no, we're open to all these theories. So just real, just real quick, three reasons why uh, the failure or demise of the carbon neutral movement is either going to take a long time to die or is not going to at all. And it's so number one, the cement plants converting what they're making. Number two, the carbon credit system that exists in the European union. I don't think we have that here yet, but I mean, to any body with, just looking at it common sense, it looks like a scam, but it still exists. So uh, number three is the ESG movement with the big banks. And look, we could go another hour talking about our feelings on the environmental social governance and how that's being tied back to the banking system and what we really think about that. But regardless of what we think about that, it's there. And if these big multinationals that are vertically integrated and have done these three things, 
converted their cement plants, the banks are pressuring them, and something called carbon credits exists. It's going to be really difficult to derail that movement that is being supported by those pillars that have nothing to do with our business. Year and a half. Right? So what's a year and a half from now? Let's call it the beginning of 2024. So ACI, spring ACI 2024. Spring ACI 2024. I think that's great. I don't think if you hear anything, whatever this movement, what is the movement called? I think it's called through ACI, the carbon neutral movement. Yep. Yeah. So you're looking at, we'll give you April, April 24. Okay. April 24. Um, that it will turn into uh, uh, less than 5%. And that means that it'll exist either by another name. And yes, I do believe that we change the names of things so we can change up goals and objectives. You know, climate change, global warming. No one's better at that than the current administration. Come on. Oh, I knew. I knew. <laughs> I was waiting on it. I was waiting on it. <laughs> the reason why... The reason why, and, and okay, so measurable. Um, so I, I think it won't exist in at least 20% of its form. That's why I think where we can start considering that it has success. I think that's a fair baseline, uh, 20%. I think that may even be aggressive on you. So you're, in that case, yeah. you're really winning it at that point. I mean, really. I, I, I can change it up a little bit more. I don't mind being a little forgiving. Because I'm very confident that our industry has such a short attention span with a large exodus of people leaving. And brother, we've been through this cement shortage. Now, y'all have a little bit more hair than me, but you know, I started a few years before y'all. And in 1996 to 1998, we had a huge cement shortage. It was called the Great Cement Shortage. And where did we go to get cements? We didn't go to freaking Idaho. We didn't start building more plants. We went to Asia. And we started getting these cements with a higher blame finest, a higher alkali content. We started getting 20, 28 day strengths in 24 hours. And our last podcast, that's what actually what that to you, that was the inflection point of where the concrete industry maybe went a little wrong. Was that cement shortage led us to having a type of cement, the characteristics that we just never recovered from. Dick Burroughs, before he passed away, God bless his soul, was trying to fight for a type six cement. One of the one of the strongest voices for us to go back to the way it used to be. 28 days to get 28 days strength. Unfortunately, he died without ever, that ever happening. And our industry won't do it. And you know, our industry is already starting to push back. I can tell you that at a number of port, ports, there are warehouses that are being rehab um, and they're starting to import cements from India mm. they're, they're buying in 20 foot containers mm -hmm. and they're schlepping out to freaking ports all over the US whether it's in Houston New Jersey or California you know the industry wants its freaking sugar and ain't gonna take aspartame it's going to pay money and it's going to kill the environment to do it. That's why you need Rich Sashi on the phone or on this, this call. He will tell you the industry is not buying sustainability. I don't care what major conglomerates. Where the eyes go, the money follows. And people are buying 
get me off the job site as quickly as possible and give me a concrete that allows me to do the same job with less qualified people or less people. Mm. That's what they're buying. Amen, brother. I think that's, we're going to have to leave this thing. That was it's a great well place said. Well said, brother. Was... Thanks guys. Really appreciate the day and the time. Thanks, John. It's always yep. a pleasure, man. Awesome. Thanks, John. I'll talk to you. Bye. All right, and that's going to do it. As always, big thank you to Dr. Belkowitz for coming on the program and enlightening us, and uh, hopefully you as well. Hopefully you enjoyed the program as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Be sure to give us a follow and five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, and also check us out on social media. Uh, that's YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh, wherever you get your social media. And be on the lookout for new episodes coming at you here shortly. We'll try to get back on a regular schedule with putting out at, uh, at least one or two episodes uh, monthly. Uh, big thanks to ActiGel 208 for being the presenting sponsor of today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. And until next time, y'all be good.